What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rehab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. All right, today we're going to talk about working faith, faith that works. And the question is, um, how does faith work exactly? That's what James is interested in. How is it that faith actually gets Jesus' work done in this world? Well, good is faith if it doesn't get Jesus' work done. But how does it do it? And James' question is simple. Is your faith, all of you in this room, is your faith a working faith or is it a dead faith? Is it a living faith or a dead faith? Is it, is it a faith that results in things getting done or is it an inactive, passive faith? And James' point is that you can actually measure this. You can measure whether somebody has a faith that works. It's not mystical. James is very practical. He's always looking at what Jesus was looking at, which is where's the fruit? Can I trace that you have faith by what it is you're doing? So basically his, his main thesis is this, Faith without good works is not provable as faith at all. You need works to see faith in action. Or to flip it around and do the converse, works without faith really isn't provable good works at all. Now, what do I mean by that? You see lots of good works. You see lots of things happening socially, social services. You say, oh, those are just good things. But if the works that you see are not rooted in faith, how do you know whether they're good or not? How do you judge what is good or bad unless you let God be the judge of what is good or bad? And if you let God be the judge of what is good and bad, there are going to be times where it absolutely is going to require faith to do those good works. The good we see in the world will require faith. 
So a lot of this passage, when I when I sketched it out ahead of time and I was kind of mapping out what are we going to be teaching on in the coming weeks, I put faith works debate, right? Because that's what this this is really centering on is the, the age old church history. Is it salvation by faith or is it salvation by works? And I was talking with a friend this week and he said, yeah, the answer is yes. It's yes. Is it salvation by works? Is Yes. In some ways, it's both, isn't it? In some ways, it's neither. I think in some ways we need to redefine our terms or put things in order. One commentator, Douglas Moo, wrote that Paul denies any effectiveness to pre-conversion works. That's why he says it's salvation by faith alone. Remember Martin Luther nailing the thesis on the door. No Roman Catholic Church is salvation by faith. All that matters is that you believe. That's, that's not that it's not that that's not true. But then what? If you believe, then what? James is pleading for the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. There is no such thing as a Christianity where I believe and I'm saved and I don't need to do anything with the rest of my life. Because you have a life to live and you've got to do something with it. So James is just a very practical philosopher, if you will. Okay, what's next? What are you going to do with that faith? And one thing is for sure, it is a humble, sacrificial, working faith that indicates that you are one who trusts in Jesus' salvation for your soul. Do I have a humble, sacrificial, working faith? faith. And I think at, 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 for a lot of us in the Christian faith, at some point, the words just break down. We hear words like glory. We hear words like grace. We hear these words that you don't really hear, by the way, anywhere else except in the four walls of the church. Like when are people using the word glory? Not very often. When do people even use the word grace? Not that often. We use these words and they start to become meaningless. And that's why the Bible predominantly is a book of stories, because we can define these terms better if we can read them in a story. Working faith needs to be heard in a story. And so I thought of this story to lead us in, in the spirit of Mother's Day, from 1 Samuel chapter 1, and it's the story of Hannah. It takes place in ancient Israel at the time of the judges, which was a time when Israel was like a tribal, more of a tribal system, right? Moses has established Israel. They've taken them out into the desert. They've taken them into the promised land, but there's no king. And so there are these leaders called judges. And to be honest, it was kind of a dark ages for the Israelite community. Uh, things got real weird. And it was hard to maintain order. Uh, they were surrounded by pagan cultures. And it was a sort of embryonic stage. And so you have these, this community that's tied together by one main thing, right? Which is the tabernacle, that they will come and they will worship the tabernacle. It's sort of a theocracy. And the idea is that everything is ruled by the word of God. And the priests are the people who are going to help bring order, judgment, justice, and are going to accept the sacrifices. So everything, everyone's coming together to the tabernacle and then they're going back out. This is happening regularly. These pilgrimages are happening regularly to sacrifice. And so there's a man named Elkanah who has two wives. One is named Peninnah, 
and one is named Hannah. And Peninnah has children from Elkanah, and Hannah has none. Her womb is closed. And it says regularly, year after year. So whether that means once a year, whether that means more often than that, year after year after year, they're going to worship and offer a sacrifice. And each time they go, Peninnah provokes Hannah and irritates her and mocks her until she weeps and can't eat. This would be like every time you come into the room and the kids are being sent up to children's lesson, someone leans over and makes fun of the fact that you have no children, right? It would just hurt time after time after time. First Samuel 1 verse 11 says, Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. And in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all of the days of his life. Now she's praying off in in anguish and her lips are just moving silently, the text says. And Eli asks if she is drunk because she's praying in her heart, moving her lips around. She looks like a crazy person. I can imagine it as I've, I've walked down the street and I've seen people, right, talking to themselves as they're walking down the street. And I'm going, what is going on? Maybe they're just praying to themselves. She couldn't be heard. And she replies, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring my soul out to the Lord, priest. You of all people should know. Eli answered, go in peace and may the, may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Go in peace. She cries out. What does she cry out to God? She says, remember me. She's asking for his blessing. She's crying out in a deep working faith. And how do we know it's working? Because she's saying, remember me. And in that moment, she's giving God her allegiance. What does she say? Do not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all of the days of her life. Okay, so she's professing to God that she is God's daughter, let's say. Remember me. And then she's saying, this is not a one-way street. If you remember me, I understand I'm obligated. I'm understanding that this is, this is like a marriage. That I am your servant. And when you bless me, in turn, I bless you by my service to you. She's giving God her allegiance. And we've talked about this a lot in this church. We've talked a lot about this idea of allegiance. And I've used the, the title, if you've been here for one of these sermons where I talked about this book, it's a guy named Matthew Bates, and he wrote a provocatively titled book called Not Salvation by Faith Alone, but Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Now, allegiance, I know it's a really strong term, feels kind of militant and intense. But what is Hannah's faith, if not total allegiance? See, when we say salvation by faith alone, I think sometimes it feels a little lopsided. We go, okay. 
It's really about my salvation. The way I get it is to profess faith and then I get what I want. But if we think about it as salvation by allegiance, now it's a very different meaning. Now it's, oh, salvation is actually entering into a relationship permanently, eternally, where I profess my allegiance to you. I am a servant to you for the rest of my soul's existence. And as somebody who's allegiant to you, to the king, you now are responsible. Every king, every leader is responsible to serve their community. So Hannah's working faith is an outcome of true allegiance to Jesus. And he gives her a son. And then what happens in verse 26? She says to Eli, she has her son. She comes to Eli and she says, pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. It's been a while. Who is this woman? She comes back with the son. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord. Then what does it say? It says, and Eli worshiped the Lord there. What an incredible witness of what it means to be faithful. A faithful mother who is saying, I'm not just faithful to the well-being of my child for the sake of my family. I'm actually faithful to the well-being of my child for the sake of God. And it, and it moves Eli, who, by the way, has not had the easiest time. He's got two total screw-up sons. So Eli's going, is there any hope in Israel anymore? And he sees a woman with a working faith, a woman who's willing to sacrifice, a woman who's willing to honor the promise that had given God had given her by giving back to him. And he worships the Lord. Now, I want to contrast this for a second, because the, right in this story, we have a contrast like James is pointing out. James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Let's, let's look at the other mother in the story. Peninnah's going to the tabernacle. She's bringing sacrifices. She is faithful, right? She is coming and she's doing all the right religious things. She's coming to church. She's giving an offering. But her deeds betray her heart. <laughs> Hannah is the poor and needy figure in the story, like in their text in James. If one of you says to somebody who is without clothes and daily food, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Think about what Peninnah is doing in this story. She's, she's, she's worse than that. She's mocking this woman who has no kids, who's in need, who's in pain without power, without privilege, and without standing. And Peninnah's taking advantage of that. She's saying, we're all doing the sacrifice. In fact, even Elkanah at one point tells, Hannah's husband at one point says, here's a double portion for sacrifice. Isn't it just enough that you have me? Certainly Peninnah has a dead faith. And her allegiance is not to God. Her allegiance is to Elkanah and her family. 
Her allegiance is actually to the status quo. Panina is happy doing, treating anyone however she wants them to be treated, so long as her life stays good for her. Her allegiance is to the status quo. Now contrast that to Hannah. Hannah has no allegiance to the status quo because the status quo is no good for Hannah. She's childless. Society thinks she's a nobody, broken. In that time, if you could not have a baby, it was a sign of some deep sin going on. The perception was that there's something wrong in your family lineage. There's something wrong with you. You've done something. Hannah is not excited about the status quo. She wants more. She wants more from a good God who is blessing, who's promised to bless his people and be faithful to them. And God is faithful to Hannah. And in turn, Hannah is faithful to God. And they are a team. So James puts this to us in verses 14 through 17. And he says, what is a working faith? What is a working faith? Is a working faith something that just maintains the status quo so long as it's good for you? Is Penina's faith really a faith? Is it really an allegiance to God? She's doing the sacrifices. She's professing God as her Lord. But is she showing good works to the poor, the marginalized, what we would call the worthless to me person? It's not just about charity. Is she being obedient to God who loves all people if she's acting the way she is? So this, this, this sets us up with a story so we can understand what working faith looks like. And we can see a person who has dead faith. What is a sign of somebody who has dead faith? They're hypocritical. She's going and doing all the sacrifices, all the good things, but she's demeaning. A, a woman in her own family, another wife to her husband. She's going to have to live with this person all the time. And so James says, look, church. You guys do this. And he goes on what we, what commentators call a diatribe. We all know what a diatribe is. A diatribe is he's just railing on the church. This whole passage, the tone that this passage should rightly be read in is like a finger pointing tone. James is just saying, you guys don't get it. What good is it? The arguments you're having don't even matter if you don't have something to show for it in obedient works to God, sacrificial works for the worthless to me person. So it's a sign that in the time of James writing to the early church, that Hannah's faith has probably become uncommon. Hannah's working sacrificial, desperate faith to have more than the status quo of society is probably uncommon. He's writing to a comfortable church. And he's saying, you shouldn't be so comfortable with the status quo because your status quo is a dead faith. And he says, what makes it so dead is that you're even justifying it. Look at, look at verse 16. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. 
doesn't sound in the least bit even aware or concerned for the plight of the other person. I call this the I'll pray for you hypocrisy, right? How many, and I'll raise my hand, have said to somebody when they tell you a really hard thing, I'll pray for that. Yeah, I'm praying for you. And then you don't, right? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into this a little bit, but on the, on the, I'm going to tackle one thing first. When you have said, I say when because I think we can all raise our hand and say this, when you have said that with literally no intention of praying for them, you were practicing a dead faith. That was hypocritical. If there was a lack of sincerity when you even said it, that's a penina move right there. That's like, oh, I really need help. Man, I'll pray for you. Go in peace. Keep warm and well-fed, man. God's going to take care of you. Like, he's got it. James says that is a hip. He's going on a diatribe against that. He's saying, you guys need to stop that. And then he's tackling the more intellectual, the stuffier people. Verse 18, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. We also have this happen a lot in the church. I have certain gifts, okay? My gifts are that I'm a prayer warrior and I'm, I'm a faith person. But you're really good at going out and talking to people. Your gifts is being relational and getting stuff done. You're really good at building. Your gift is building. You're, like, and what we do is we separate everything out and we justify our passivity. Oh, I'm, I'm not the faith person. I have a weak faith. Megan's the faith person, right? I'm the doer. Tell me what you need to get done, right? Or, man, I, I just, I, I really love talking to God and I have so much faith. And in the, the reality is I'm scared to death of getting outside my comfort zone. So go, go talk to, to Ellen. She likes dealing with that. Go talk to Carrie. Like, you see what I mean? We, we, we separate this all out in the name of our giftings. And we justify inaction and passivity because we're afraid, because we're comfortable. And James says, don't separate these out. There is no person with faith and person with deeds. There is only working faith. This compartmentalization is deadening our faith. It's justifying us. James is basically railing against church's willful inaction in the face of injustice. And he's pointing out what it says about their faith. And he, he keeps going, man. He keeps going. He's, James is harsh. Verse 19, he says, you believe. So 18 part B, he says, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God. Great. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Even the demons believe that. This, he says, when you justify your inaction, your, your, when you basically reveal your lack of concern by not doing anything about it, or even justifying and saying, this is the reason I shouldn't do anything about it, says this is an act in willful rebellion against God because that's what the demons are in. The demons are in well, willful rebellion 
Even the demons call God king. Remember, the, the demons will say to Jesus and some of the miracle stories, Lord, they will, they will, they will, they know that he has ultimate power. But they have the audacious arrogance not to follow him. They're in active, willful rebellion. Paul writes about the craziness of this in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. He says, here is a trustworthy saying, if we have died with him, we also live with him, meaning Jesus. If we endure, we will also reign with Jesus. Then he says this, if we disown him, he will also disown us. This, this is, I've, I've said this over and over. If we say no to God, he lets us go. My, my, my understanding of hell is very linked to this whole idea. If we disown him, he will also disown us. Not because he's a mean, angry God, but because he's actually respectful. He says, you don't want me? There's nothing, there's actually nothing else. I'm life, so if you don't want me, there's only death. But that's your choice. We disown him, he will also disown us. The demons disown him. People with a dead faith are disowning God. You say, well, that's not fair. Now, wait a second. Disowning is different than failing and getting back up again. Disowning is saying, I'm not wrong. Disowning is saying, when you're wrong, you actually think you're right. That's disowning. Justifying it as righteous. Panina is going to offer sacrifices. You don't offer sacrifices unless you are in a place where you're going, I'm clean, I'm ritually clean, I've done all the things, I am righteous, here's my sacrifice. I believe I'm good, here's my sacrifice. Imagine Panina, she's just chewed out Hannah. She's just made fun of it, laughed at her in another room and then come out in her church clothes and said, here I am, God. This is what disowns. We don't want this in our church. We don't want this. So we need to understand what our terms are. We need to redefine maybe what faith means to us and make sure that our faith is a working faith. When we say, I am faithful, we are also saying, I am working. When we say, I am faithful, we are also saying, I am sacrificing. When we are saying, I am faithful, we are also saying, I am serving God above everything else. Uh, he has my allegiance. There's no question about it. If you see an area where you don't see my allegiance, you have permission to correct me. That is a working faith. But faith without works is actually a lack of faith, is what James is saying. It ultimately ends up being either hypocrisy, cowardice, laziness, arrogance. And here's what's so crazy about it. As people of faith, we have the full backing and power of God. And if we're not doing anything, we have nothing to show for it. That's a, that's a waste. That's a waste of an incredible energy source. I've got a nuclear power plant and it's not connected to anything. Then why do you have it? That's what a dead faith is. And as I said, conversely, good works without faith can't be known as good. Who says it's good? 
because good works without faith, and a lot of us have this and fall into this, is trying to do everything out of your own power. Good works without faith is this, no power plant, or there's a nuclear power plant, here's all this stuff that's getting powered, I'm running around with a battery device connecting me, trying to power every house in the city, and there's a nuclear power plant, they're ready to power everything, and I'm getting burned out. And God's like, what are you doing? You need to have faith. Good works without faith is not going to work. It's either not going to be good works for long, or it's maybe just not going to be anything good. Because we need to have God's sense of right and wrong, and we need to have his sense of timing, too. We need to know what he wants. Listen and be faithful and be a conduit for him. That takes a lot of discernment. That's probably a whole nother sermon. So James is saying, you've got to be faithful in our works and working in our faith. Now you say, John, like implicated, I, I have done that thing where I'll say, I'll pray for you and didn't pray. I've done that. What about me? I'm, I'm checking my heart. I don't think I said it insincerely. I think when I talked to that person and said, oh, man, I'm really sorry about your mother or your, your dad. Or I'm really sorry about that illness. I'll pray for you. I think I said it in sincerity, but I know for sure that I went home and I did not pray. I know for sure that even in that moment, I didn't pray. I'm forgetful and I'm frustrated with myself. What about me? One well, second, Timothy, Paul goes on after he says, if we disown him, he will disown us. And he says, but if we are faithless, God remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. What does he mean by he cannot disown himself? Exodus 34, 6, to go to, it's the most quoted Old Testament passage in the Bible. It's about the character of God. Who is God? If you don't get anything else, get this. The character of God for your life. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. God can't change who he is. He's always going to be faithful to us. So if we have faithless times, but we haven't disowned him, we haven't said, go away, God, I want nothing to do with you. I know what's right, and it's not what you think is right. I've disowned you. I'm not allegiant to you. Your law is not my law. Your country is not my country. I've made my own kingdom. But if we say, I am, I am yours, God, and then we're forgetful, we lack discipline, we lack structure, we, we find ourselves ineffective, and we actually go, I'm convicted. Like, I would like to pray for somebody when I actually say I'll pray for them. Help me, God. Help me treat the worthless to me person in a way that you would want them to be treated. I just, I don't know why. I struggle with this over and over again, God. I struggle with building good habits. James says, I can work with that. I can work with that. You want a working faith? Let's work on that faith. I can work with that. This means to us, and we need to say this over again, over and over again, because this is the culture of grace that we need to have 
always in our church, is you can fail God, but he won't quit on you. You can fail your friends in this church, and we should not quit on each other. If we're not disowning each other, but we're saying, I am so sorry, right? I believe, repent and believe. I turn, I don't want to be like that. My allegiance is to God right along with you. And I see that my faith has not been working, but I want it to work. Hannah's working faith clings and says, never let me go, God. Though I might be broken, I am not leaving you. I'm not going to think things about you, God, that aren't true. I'm going to think the true things about you. I'm going to see how broken I am. I'm going to call out to you and say, just please don't leave me. Stay with me. I'll try again. Because your whole life, you think you're going to get to like, I don't know, maybe it's just me. You think you're going to get to the certain point. Maybe it's age 40. And it's like, now I'm going to be wiser. Now I'm not going to make those mistakes, those really dumb ones anymore. Now I'm going to be a good listener. I'm going to just zip my mouth and in an argument, I'm going to be the first one to listen, right? Eventually I'm going to arrive. And it just, this is not the Christian life. The thing we actually need to learn the most is not to, not to think someday I'm going to arrive at best behavior. Maybe what we need to aim for is someday I'm going to arrive at being repentant consistently. Someday I'm going to arrive at seeing myself humbly, meaning seeing myself as somebody who is going to fail over and over until I die. And I'm not saying that as a pessimist. I'm saying that as like, maybe actually that's glorious. Maybe that's beautiful. Like I get to a place where my wisdom is actually, I can't do this life without God. And I'm a broken person and I'm going to, I'm willing to be broken with you. I mean, the wisest people in our life are those kind of people. They're not the people that have everything right. They're the people that come alongside and say, me too. Me too. Can we chat about it? I'm going through this too. And I'm 30 years older than you. But like, let's work out our faith together because I know we have a good God and I know he's going to give us another chance. That's beautiful. Like that's the church where we can work together and work out our faith together. So what kind of faith do you want to have? What kind of faith do we want to have in this church? Do we want a penina faith, a dead faith, a hypocritical faith? Do we want a demon faith that's disowning God? It's really just faithful in ourselves. Those are easy faiths. They're really easy to say, I believe in Jesus and I go to X church down the street and I'm saved and I'm going to heaven and you should too. That's easy. But James says it's incorrect. It's actually incorrect. The reason it's so easy is because it's wrong. The harder faith, the one where you're living and growing, the one that's working, is the allegiant faith. So for the average Christian, perhaps we need to remember this. Professing faith alone does not get you to heaven one day sometime in the future. Because you've got a life to live and God cares how you live it. But living your faith as a working faith brings you into he- brings heaven into earth right now. So we are living in a piece of heaven. 
as we have an allegiant faith to God, because we are working in partnership with a God who will never leave us. So when I say, God, you've got all of me, I surrender it all to you, I have blown it this week. And my role in where I stand in the church or where I stand in my family, I see that I'm not wanting to serve the worthless to me person. I see that I'm self-focused and I want things for myself. But God, I'm turning and repenting in that. And I see that you are willing to partner with me again, even though it doesn't make sense why you would want to. And I'm so grateful for that. Never leave me. And in your partnership, Heaven actually enters into me. I'm at peace, a peace that transcends understanding. And I am able to live out and actually spread heaven into earth. That's the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about all throughout the gospel. And it's because of my working faith that all of that is assured to me. So it's like God is looking more about where you're aiming your faith. And he's asking, what do you really truly love? Or let's put it a different way, what do you really want in life? Because we've all got it. What do you really, really want? Because if we can get that on and we can all aim at the same Jesus, now all we're looking for is progress, not perfection. All we're looking for from each other is progress, not perfection. All Jesus is looking for is progress, not perfection. He's saying, great, uh, if you're aimed in that direction, the only direction to go is toward it. So if you're going this way, let's turn you around. Let's get you heading back in the right direction. Physical therapy, spiritual therapy, soul therapy, whatever we got to do so you can walk again. And let's head in that direction. He's never going to say anything else to you other than walk toward Jesus. That's what a working allegiant faith is like. And our church is called Citizens Church because this allegiant faith is a citizen's faith. I was learning in class this week about the book of Philippians and about Paul's journeys. Philippians, if some of you may have noticed, it's a, it was a colony of Rome. Okay, so it's far away from the, the boot from Italy and It's this colony of Roman citizens in a foreign land, basically, because Rome had this all over the place. It was an empire. So Paul, when he was writing to that church, uses this language of citizenship of heaven, and he uses a language of a colony of heaven, because Paul is going to speak to people where they're at with what they know. He says, you know what it's like to be in a colony. You know what it's like to be Roman, but not be in Rome. Guess what? That's what it's like to be Jesus followers, but not be in heaven yet with him, to not be on the new earth with him. You're in the kingdom. You're in the kingdom colony your whole life here on earth. The name of this church was birthed out of this idea that we are citizens of the kingdom of God on earth, a colony, a colony of heaven in the land of Portland. So we share, just as the the Philippians shared with Rome, a lot in common also with the, the, I don't know, native cultures of the area around Philippi. They shared that they're all human beings. They shared that they all need to eat. They shared all kinds of stuff with those people. But they had a different allegiance. So they were going to have different values than the people of that land. Some of the tribal cultures have different values than they have because they're Roman. 
And so sometimes they're going to look different. Sometimes they're going to act different. Sometimes the people of that culture are going to go, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your money. Why are you paying taxes to Rome? Like we're here. We don't pay taxes. Like the, the, the whole thing, there's going to be different goals, different behaviors. You're going to sacrifice for different reasons. If people are truly Roman and they're obligated to that, when they're conscripted into the military and they're saying, you got to go fight, they're going to treat that really differently than people that don't have allegiance to Rome and maybe just got taken over and have to send their sons and daughters to fight. They're going to go in willingly. They're going to go in because they care and they believe in the same thing. This is what a working faith is. It's saying sacrifice isn't painful in the same way anywhere because it's not being taken from me. It's not being extracted from me. I actually signed up for this because I believe in sending my sons and daughters into the battle against the gates of hell. I believe in that. So is it painful anytime there's uncertainty and you have to trust God and the kings and the rulers to care for your sons and daughters? Yes. But there's a peace in it that this is why I live. This is what I do. It's a total change from pursuing for, for following the word of God as an act of triumph and glory versus an act of love and service. The best way I can explain this, uh, my mom, uh, I'm in an era where my mom loved Harrison Ford and Sean Connery. We would, we would, we had a conversion van with a eight inch TV in it. And this was 1995, let's say, right? And that was awesome. I mean, we were like the talk of the town. Everybody wanted to ride this and watch TV in the back of the car. Um, and we had like, my parents were like not movie people. So they bought about four or five VHSs. I still remember Father of the Bride Part Two was one of them. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was in there. Star Wars trilogy. There was, and we watched all of them like a hundred times, you know? It was just like, oh, we're in the, we're done a long trip again. My parents hadn't thought about bringing a movie. It's just like, what's in there, kids? Throw it in. I watched The Last Crusade like so many times. And there's a scene, for those of you who have seen it, there's a scene where uh, near the end, the whole idea of the movie is that they're looking for the Holy Grail. And of course, they're trying to beat the Nazis, right, to get it. And so Indiana Jones has gotten like so close and they're in this this like amazing uh middle eastern cave with this amazing like extruded city on the outside and they walk in and his dad is dying i think he gets shot or he gets a wound of some kind and he's laying on the floor dying and he goes son like you have to go the rest of the way without me so he has the words he has the instructions of how to get through to get to the grail. And up until this point for Indiana Jones, right, it's all about triumph and glory. It's all about like, I'm the professor who is also the adventurer and I'm going to go reclaim the relic, right? And I'm going to look amazing and we're going to restore this for America. And it's, it's, it's all about a pursuit of his own triumph. 
And something shifts in this process where his dad is dying. Now he no longer needs the Holy Grail for his own eternal life. He no longer needs to drink from a cup. The Nazis are after it, right? Because they want the power. And up until this point too, in some ways, Indiana Jones is, is in it for the power. He's going, we want, we want to have this. We want to control this. Just Even if it's just to keep it from you. And something changes. Now he needs the holy water to heal the wound of his father. It's the gospel thread in the story. Now, now suddenly he's not pursuing what his whole life was about at that time for himself anymore. He's pursuing it to love and serve his father. And what it shows is the transformation that we go through as followers of Christ the transformation in leadership, the transformation in our faith, no longer being a working for ourselves in our own eternal life and our own glory and our own moral superiority and doing it the right way and better than everyone else for uh, power and privilege and standing and a church we're in for influence. We're no longer doing it for any of that. We are now doing it because we desperately need it to serve a dying soul to serve dying souls that we love so much that we will give our life for them. And so he stands at this part where he's, he, he runs out and he goes like this and there's just a cliff. There's a chasm below him. And he looks over and the, the, the test that he's on is that he has to get from this part of the cliff over to this portal on the other side. And he goes, I can't jump that far. What am I gonna do? How am I going to bridge the gap? How am I going to bring my father from death to life? It's going to take literally an act of faith, right? And so I think, I forget what he reads. I haven't watched this, the clip recently. But he realizes that he's going to have to take the step of faith. And he, he goes almost to cartwheel over and he steps down and the camera pivots and there's like a bridge that exactly looks like the cliff in front of him. And you start to see it and you go, oh, only once he took the step, only once he began to bridge the gap because of faith in the instructions that he was given, did he begin to actually put himself in that place of working and sacrificing his own life is the metaphor. His own life is being sacrificed for the love of somebody else. And of course he gets the rail and everything goes well. James is putting his own Indiana Jones story of transformation in here when he talks about Abraham. He's saying Abraham has that kind of working faith when he's preparing to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Abraham is given a test. Are you going to put it all on the line? Because you might say, well, he didn't have to kill himself. He's killing his son. This is his only son. This is his legacy. This is like everything Abraham has always wanted. And he has to trust 
that the word of God is going to supersede, is going to overpower what seems to be the opposite of itself. He, he's saying, put your son to death as a sacrifice. But earlier in Genesis 15, he said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So shall your offspring be. And so Abraham, Abraham has to look at these two things and go, I'm being asked to do something that appears to be totally risky for myself, a complete sacrifice, and appears to be something that will blow all of this, like none of it will work. But I have to trust in the promise of God and take the next step and let him do what he's going to do to carry out his promise, knowing that I have no choice but to do what he's asked me to do. That's the conflict. The conflict is that Abraham's been commanded and given the word and the instruction of what to do next. Now the question is, will he trust that God's gonna show up when he puts his foot down over the chasm? And of course, God provides a ram and Abraham names that mountain, Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide, the Lord will provide. Do we trust in the promises of God and the word of God and the people of God who have a working faith in such a way that we will put our life, our finances, our time, our energy on the line in a bold faith? Do we really believe that if we cling on to the promises of God, that no matter what happens, he will pull us closer to him in the process. It's not that bad things won't happen to us as people who are seeking to be faithful to God. It's not that we won't do things that appear crazy, foolish, but that, that may result in financial reversals, that may result in all kinds of things that affect us where the society around us is not part of the colony of heaven will say, that's insane. And we will say, you know what? It seems like it, but I did it and I'm closer to God and his promises for me. They're more real. Now I'm completely dependent on him. Now I'm completely reliant on him. A working faith. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate example of the working faith. I don't have time to go into it too much, but I will, I will walk you through a couple things. First of all, as we've talked about, Jesus mirrors James very much. This is not like James is going, you know what? I've done some work on what Jesus did and actually works really matter. Like it's kind of an edit, but your works matter. And you got to remember that even though Jesus didn't say it. No, somebody's seen it all. Jesus talks about this. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus by their fruit, you will recognize them. Then he says, about the judgment, not everyone will say to me, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of his father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm with James on this one. And Jesus, of course, showed us he had a faith with follow through. 
It was not about glory for himself or about a quest for an accomplishment, but about service and love for a dying world. He had a faith that had total trust in God's goodness and care for him as a beloved son and was not worried or anxious about God keeping his promises. And his faith was not hypocritical, but authentic, wholehearted, open, and vulnerable. He gave away everything to obey the will of the Father. So what kind of faith do we have? Do we have a faith with works? Perhaps our faith isn't working because we aren't holding the space. We've, we've grown up with other people to rely on to hold the space for us. What does that mean? We cave. We get scared. We get anxious. We don't have courage to lead in the unknown with hope in the unseen because we've always had somebody to do it for us. That might mean that you need to go tackle the promises of God yourself. You need to crack open that Bible and say, what are his promises for me? Not what have I been told by somebody that's always encouraging me when I'm struggling. How do I go to God and let him encourage me directly so that now I can hold the space for somebody else? God's building you up in that. All of us have areas of codependency where we built relationships around us to fulfill those areas where we say, I'm not gifted in that. I'm not a faith person. Yes, you are a faith person. Turn around, head in the right direction. I will grow your faith. Maybe some of us need to learn how to hold the space. Second Corinthians says we should take every thought captive. Perhaps we need to work on the discipline of maintaining hope in times where we feel hopeless. To make God's promises real for us. Because for some of us, the reason our faith has no works is the devil is luring us into despair. And we are not tying ourselves to the ship of Christ. Instead, we're going to crash on the cliffs of the devil's siren call of discouragement and hopelessness. And he's already winning if you're not doing things in faith. So see if some of these things generally describe you. I'm going to have one more set of these and then we're out. If this generally describes you, then perhaps you have a faith without works. You need to work on holding the space of God's promises. Generally, there's a lot of inaction in your life. You know you should do things, but you're not doing them. It's probably a sign. There's a lot of talk without follow through. You tell people you'll do things a lot when you talk to them, but that you don't make space or say no to the right things so you can say yes to your yeses and follow through with them. You have a fear of disrupting the status quo, even when it's not good. You have a lot of uncertainty or indecision. You're avoidant. You're justifying your life as it is, even though internally you're not happy with it. These are signs. You need to work on making God's promises your own and holding the space and knowing that he will care for you. Perhaps your faith isn't working because you do a lot of works without faith. I know some of us fit in this category. Perhaps you default to burning out because you don't believe God will keep his promises for you. So you end up doing a lot of stuff and then blaming a lot of people, resenting other people who don't work as hard as you. Instead of obeying God's commandment not to judge and love your neighbor as yourself, you find yourself maybe gossiping, 
you find yourself um, frustrated chronically. You find yourself unable to wind down. You can't stop doing things. You're constantly looking for something better, more entertaining, more useful, or more exciting than where God has you. It's too small for me. It's too quiet for me. Too limited. It's not effective. You have a sense that you're called to bigger things and can't be bothered to do what God has you to do in this season with what he has in front of you. God is trying to grow every one of us. And if we're listless in this time, in this space, ask yourself, what am I after? Do I think I'm going to get it somewhere else? Or does he have somewhere for me to grow right now? Because it's going to be scary. All of us are in one of these two camps. And I'm not saying any of us have a dead faith. I'm not saying any of us here are disowning God. I'm saying that we are in places where we are faithless and we need to remember that he is faithful. And I think the working faith that he has for us is going to lead our church into a new life where we feel the electricity of being a colony of heaven and earth. But even if it's not about citizens being a colony of heaven and earth, then ask yourself, what is the whole reason that God has me at this church? And I want you to know this, no matter what, it is to bring your faith into works. So maybe the whole reason you're at Citizens, maybe the whole reason this whole season for you is happening is because God wants to activate your faith into works, or he wants to take your works and reel them back and get you in faith so that wherever he's pulling you to, even if it's not about this church, you're going to be following him in a more rich way with your whole life. And isn't that enough? And can't you start that right now? Let's pray.